A-B-A Resort. West Canyon High Welcome to today's episode of ABA Wizard. We have Anna Kate Edgman with us who authored the recent journal article in the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis titled Behavioral Skills Training to Increase Interview Skills of Adolescent Males in a Juvenile Residential Treatment Facility. And uh, I know this is, this is an exciting topic. We have behavioral skills training. We have you know people in, in the legal system, and I'm super excited to talk to Anna Kate about it. Uh, but first, I do want to introduce her uh, so we can get to know her a little bit. Um, Anna Kate obtained a bachelor's degree in psychology from the University of Florida and a master's degree in applied behavior analysis from Auburn University. And for the last two years, she's she was working as a clinical fellow serving children in Tampa, Florida. And now she works as a research assistant at Auburn University. And in the fall... She's actually starting her doctoral training at Auburn University under the mentorship of Dr. John Rapp. Uh, Her research interests include the application of behavior analytic procedures in improving the lives of individuals who have been adjudicated. Uh, She's presented on this and related topics at state and international conferences. And in addition, she's published articles on interventions for youth who have been adjudicated. So Anna Kate, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Kylan. I'm really excited for this um, podcast this morning. Yeah, it's awesome. And you you really do have quite the area of interest. Um, I, I'm curious, what led you to be interested in uh, individuals involved in the legal system? What brought you there? So uh, when I was first applying to master's programs, um, the one of the many that had my interest was Auburn. And it was um, in part because of this very unique practicum experience that was provided in Auburn's program. Um, It was definitely something that I didn't know anybody who was doing at the time. Um, It wasn't something that I necessarily entered the field of behavior analysis with the goal of working within that field. But I was interested in that experience. And after doing practicum in this setting, um, that's when I realized how unique this population is and how much our field has to offer to this population and how incredibly rewarding it is to work with this population. That's so cool. Yeah, I uh, I don't have any experience working with that population and it seems fascinating. So that's really cool that you've had that opportunity. And um, so the study that you published, um, I just, I'd, I'd love some background info on it. Like what, what was the research question? What were you looking at studying? Um, just kind of some background info on the study that, that you did. All of the individuals in this study have been adjudicated for illegal sexual behavior and all of them are court ordered to receive um, an accountability based sex offender treatment. Um, that's done within this facility. And our primary purpose um, as the ABA team within this facility is to um, help these individuals uh, by reducing problem behavior that's displayed within the facility. So for us, we're not necessarily treating the behavior that got them into this facility. We're treating uh, problem behaviors and skill deficits that are 
displayed within the facility. So each of these individuals that are in the article, they were originally referred to the ABA team for a problematic behavior, uh, like inappropriate vocalizations or non-compliance um, or self-injurious behavior. And then once that original referral concern was treated and no longer a pressing issue, a lot of these individuals just expressed to us as a team hey, I'm going to be released from this facility soon, or I'm going to complete my treatment soon, and I'm going to leave this facility with either a GED or a high school diploma, um, and I want to be able to either get a job or go for higher education when I leave this facility. Um, so that that's where we sort of sort of shifted our treatment focus from treating problem behavior to treating a skill deficit that the, these individuals specifically asked for. That is so cool. And it actually answered a question that, uh, you know, I was going to ask, but maybe I'll still ask it for further clarification. Okay. So uh, as far as like focusing on interview skills, you said that you um, don't necessarily focus on the problem behavior that brought them into your services. Um, but I'm still curious, you know, what led you, was there a suspicion that there was this connection that interview skills, um, as those develop, that could help them stay away from the legal system when they get out? Was there this assumption or were the two kind of unrelated? Um... That's actually a very, very good question. So just to, just to specify, the illegal sexual behavior that they had been adjudicated for was not necessarily our, um, their referral concern that we were trying to treat for these individuals. They were just referred for, you know, maybe a staff member or um, a educational member, some other staff member at the facility identified a problem behavior within the facility and referred them to us. We treated that for these individuals, when the first time one of these individuals, one of the students came to me, I think it was actually Conrad in the study, who was one of the first, um, when he came to me and said, hey, I really want to focus on this skill of getting a job. Um, interview skills just seem like a, a great place to start because it's like we kind of talked about in the beginning of the article, it's sort of um, one of the first steps in the behavior chain to getting employment or getting higher education yeah um and then once we started thinking about why this was important for these individuals specifically um is when i sort of dug into additional research on how being able to gain employment or education might reduce recidivism we don't it's not completely clear what the recidivism rates are for the adolescent population um, nationally, but it might do do that. Um, and in addition, the, this skill might serve as a behavioral cusp. So when you think about interview skills, all right, you got to do that to get a job or possibly to get into college, you might need to do an interview. And then once you engage in that behavior and you're offered employment or education, um, you might then be differentially reinforced for behaviors like attending a physical space or professional demeanor. Um, yeah. And some of the reinforcers for that might be compensation, social interaction, access to tangibles. And then as a result of that, you might increase your socioeconomic status and you might get access to health benefits. So it just seemed like this huge behavioral cusp for these individuals once they're released from this facility 
wow, we could really improve their lives overall and maybe also reduce recidivism by providing this skill. So just a huge, it seems like such a small behavior interview skills. I think a lot of us, when we think about interview skills, we're like, oh yeah, I got to brush up on those skills. When you think about it, it actually has huge consequences for our lives and us as individuals. So I really like that. I have not ever thought about interview skills as a behavioral cusp, but it totally is. Like that's, yeah. that's so fascinating. And I, I look at it as well that like if they if if they are working and they're employed, um, I think an added benefit is that it's almost like a, a DRI that like them working is an incompatible behavior with some of the other you know, illegal behaviors that perhaps they have done in the past. And and obviously, like I am going beyond the research here and there's just, I, I foresee a lot of benefits in addressing this behavioral cusp. So I think that's really cool that that's the chosen target here. And I'm, I'm wondering how like behavioral or interview skills, that's a, a pretty broad term. And my understanding is in the article, you break that down a little bit into, you know, measurable behaviors. And so how did you guys break those down? So fortunately, when, um, when the students in the study, when they first approached me saying they needed help, the first thing I did was refer to the literature. And I was very fortunate to find some research from Corey Stocko and colleagues from 2017. They had already used BST to teach interview skills to college-age students. Um, and so that was my starting point. I was like, this is, this is great. This is BST. They've already defined some very objective behaviors here. Um, and you can see in the article, the, um, the measurement systems and the definitions that we used for our behaviors were identical to theirs because this is a replication study. Um, and so that, that was, that helped us a lot in defining those behaviors and understanding those behaviors. Um, and what was most helpful I think in from the Stocko study was that they had seven categories of questions that might be asked within an interview. Um, and so we actually contacted those authors and asked for their supplemental info so we could see what were examples of those questions they were asking. And we used the exact same types of question categories and questions. Um, so that's how we broke down interview skills as a behavioral repertoire into specific behaviors of that repertoire to be measured and evaluated in our study was mostly just through um, referring to the Stocko and colleagues study. It's a replication of Stocko and they, you guys were building on it in the sense that you were addressing the interview skills with adolescents. Is that right? And were they working with adults? Yeah. So we were, um, we extended their study in a couple of ways. We Obviously, we're doing it with a totally different population. Um, so I guess, yeah, okay, I'll just say that. Um, we're doing it with a totally different population. Um, we also used some more stringent mastery criteria than the Stockholm and colleagues. So that um, was one modification that we made. And then the last uh, extension that we made to the Stockholm and colleagues study that I think was um, really important for this population was out of our seven students, four of them were really successful with just the components of BST alone. But for three of our students, BST alone um, was not as effective. It did not increase their appropriate um, responses to interview questions yeah. to mastery level. 
So for those three, um, we used a stimulus and response prompt. So what that looked like was a little card that had one of the types of interview question categories at the top. So it's a stimulus prompt in that it's taking what was an auditory stimulus and introverbal and now adding to that auditory stimulus a textual prompt that's the question is now written oh. and then it was uh, yeah and then it was also a response prompt because below that question on the card was the requirements for answering the question correctly and we would put that out in front of the student while we were working on the role play portion of our BST component so that they could focus on one th that one question and we taught those questions in isolation and so this was something that you guys did in this study uh, that was an extension of Stocko's, right? That's Yeah, so Stocko, okay. Stocko didn't have this component and they didn't have this component in their study. I think most of their participants were successful with BST alone and some booster training. Um, but yeah. for our participants, they needed something more. And this was actually the idea of one of the authors, Sally Hamrick. I got to give credit for her, to her because she came up with this idea, this prompting procedure. And when she she told me what she was doing, I was like, this is this is such a great idea. This is perfect. And then as a result, the students who needed it, Jeb Jackson and Tanner, all of them um, ultimately met mastery criteria. So it was a really cool modification to have in our study. Um, and then in addition, it was really successful for our students, which was the most important part. That's really cool. And it is a, a, a very genius way of... Uh... Of, of prompting that correct answer there. And we are going to, we might touch on that a little bit more. I, I want to back up a little bit here. The study okay. followed, just to kind of give an overview of the of the procedures that you used, you've done a lot of it. Um, I, it appears that it's a, it's a multiple baseline across participants. Uh, and the baseline procedure uh, for the individuals, what did the baseline phase look like? So prior to even the baseline phase, um, we had a, a pre-interview session or okay. a pre-baseline preparation session uh -huh. um, where we brought the guys in. They ex We talked about why interview skills would be important to their goals of education or employment. And we um, got them on a the computer and asked them, all right, let's think about some places that you might work that you're interested in. Or let's think about some places that you might work they are going to be close to your residence. Um, so I also want to add in here that the school that was on this campus um, provided, they had a high school so these students could get their high school diploma or their GED. But in addition to that, they had vocational courses and things like masonry, welding, building construction. So some of these students were coming out of the facility with welding or masonry certificates that would be incredibly helpful for them. Wow, um, what a cool program. Yeah, really, really a great service to these guys to be able to come out with this. So when we sat down for our pre-baseline session, we kind of talked about that too. Of, you know, what vocational certificates do you have? What's your interests? Um, and then we also looked at that for college and we had them identify a couple of different places that they might want to work or apply to college for. Um, we printed out information off of those websites so that they could kind of study up on what would happen at these places, what they could expect. They could think about what questions they might ask that wasn't clear from these web pages. 
Um, and then and all we told, we just printed it out for them, gave it to them to look over in their own time. And then at our next session, we told them, all right, we're going to do, um, we're going to do a mock interview at your next session. So then we started baseline. And when we did these baseline sessions, we just asked one question from each of our seven question categories. And we just gave a really neutral response. We didn't provide any feedback or any differential consequences. Uh, we just nodded our heads or said, okay, thank you. Um, and then after that is when we moved into the BST portion. Okay. And with the interview, I, I'm trying to kind of imagine myself there with the interview. Uh, were they given like a scenario? Like we are pretending that we're this company that you're interviewing with. Yes. Or... Yeah. So, yeah. Um, we would identify, okay, here today, we're going to pretend like we're interviewing for this particular company. Um, and we would, we would have them sit across from us and there would usually be a data collector off to the side and, um, we'd go from there. Okay. And every time you did an interview, uh, like throughout the study, uh, you, you kind of had like a, a question bank is my understanding, mm -hmm. right? That you had the seven categories, but then within those seven categories, you had, you know, a bunch of questions under each category. And, and would you just pick one at random? Is, is that kind of how it would go? Yeah, it was sort of randomly chosen. So our seven question categories, again, those are categories that we got um, from Stocko and colleagues study. And so it was question categories like about their interest in the job or what relevant experiences, leadership skills, career goals, that kind of thing. And so you know, specifically within like a problem solving category, we might ask the question like, tell me about a time when you had a problem at work and you had to solve it. Or tell me, at a, tell me about a time when you were faced with a challenge and what did you do to overcome that challenge? And so within the category, they were sort of randomly assigned to that session. However, one really important component that we did specifically in our study was we had when we got into the BST phase, so we're doing our instructions and modeling and role playing and feedback, there were certain questions from each category that we would use in our instructions and modeling portion. So, for example, in instructions and modeling, we might ask a question like, tell me about a time when you had to display leadership skills. But then when we got to the role play, we'd have certain questions from each category that we did not talk about in instructions and modeling. And we only talked about that question in the role play and feedback portion. So again, from that leadership skills category, instead of the question we asked in instructions and modeling, instead, when we got into role play and feedback, we might say, what are some leadership qualities that you possess? And tell me some examples that you have of those leadership skills. And so they're two really different looking questions, but they're from the same category. And our intention with doing that was to program for um, stimulus generalization. Obviously, all of these students are in this residential treatment facility, and we have to program for that generalization to ensure that they're going to generalize these skills outside of the facility. So that's one way that we tried to program for generalization. That's really cool. And in the behavioral skills training phase, let's let's do some more, uh, let's, let's talk a little bit more about that phase. So 
What yeah. did behavioral skills training look like? I think most people listening to this podcast are probably familiar with BST, but in case someone isn't, uh, give us a rundown on on how that uh, how that looked. Okay, so um, behavior skills training traditionally involves instructions, modeling, role playing, and feedback in that order. Um, so for each of the behaviors that we were targeting with BST, we targeted behaviors one at a time. Um, we would provide instruction. So for example, uh, let's talk about appropriate posture as an example. We would provide instructions and say appropriate posture means you're sitting up, your hands are folded, you're facing forward. And then we would provide a model of examples and non-examples of appropriate posture. So um, I would be in session with one of our students and I would sit appropriately. I would sit up straight. I would fold my hands and say, this is what appropriate posture looks like. And then I would kind of slouch in my chair or shuffle my feet or, you know, look off to the side and say, this is what inappropriate posture looks like and then ask them okay okay now tell me if this is this appropriate or is this not appropriate posture um and then we would do our role play and during our role play even though we were only targeting maybe for that role play session we were only targeting appropriate posture we still took data on all the other behaviors that were occurring so appropriate responses to questions, appropriate question asking, appropriate posture, appropriate fidgeting, and smiling. Those were our five dependent variables. So even though we were only targeting appropriate posture in that session for intervention, we took data on all of those things. And typically we'd have a secondary um, data collector sitting off to the side helping take all of that data. And then after our role play, we would provide our students with a T-chart. And this is, this is again, it's from the Stocko study. It's a self-evaluation study or a self-evaluation component. We would have a T-chart and it would have things that I need to improve upon and things I did really well. And we'd have, we would provide that feedback on things they needed to improve upon and things they did really well. And they would write it down and ideally review it before their next session. Um, and that was that's pretty much what the role play and feedback portions of our BSC phase looked like. So that's sort of the whole picture. It seems it seems kind of long, but one session of BST would typically only take maybe 10 to 20 minutes, just depending on the student's performance and what else was going on that day. That's that's really cool. And I, that leads me to my next thought here is how long did this study take overall? Um how, like how many sessions, you know, with each participant or like just chronologically, how many days or weeks did this uh, study encompass? So this study, let's see. Um, I think the first session I ever did with a student was probably in um, maybe fall of 2017. And the last session that was run with any of these students, because some of these students are at this facility at the same time, and some of them are not at the facility at the same time. That makes sense. Yeah. So um, on average, these students are there for about 10, min 10 months for their treatment. But um, the, I think one of the last sessions that's in this article um, was probably run in, I believe, summer or spring of 2019. So... Um, it took some time just because of the spreading of the students. But when you look at the individual students, we have individuals like, for example, Tanner, who took upwards of 90 sessions. Um, 
and some of that was just because it took a long time to ensure that he met mastery criterion for engaging in appropriate answers. Um, and then we also have students like, for example, Martin, who we ran less than 20 sessions with. And part of those, those two things exist for a couple of reasons. One I already mentioned, Tanner needed additional modification, which took additional time to meet mastery criterion for this specific behavior. And then in addition, Tanner remained at the facility long enough for us to get maintenance probes up to two months after he mastered the entire protocol. Whereas Martin, part of the reason we don't have any maintenance probes for Martin is because he was released before we even had a chance. So some of the, you know, when you think about like, you know, trials, trials or sessions to mastery in this particular study, some of it is dependent on the individual's performance, which is typical when we're providing behavior analytic services. But some of it, in the, it for these particular students is just based on our access to the students. Some of them leave before we can ensure that they've mastered the skill or we can do a maintenance probe. And that's just part of the nature of working in this facility. Well, with the, with the data that, that you present, they, there was some really significant improvement here. You guys did an amazing job, whether it took, you know, 90 sessions or not, like we saw some huge improvement. Um, and so let's, let's talk a little bit about the results. Uh, you've mentioned before that a few of the individuals were able to meet criterion with simply the BST interventions. Um, how many of those, how many individuals were able to do so just with BST? So of our seven students who were in the study, four of them met mastery criterion with just BST alone. Incredible. That's yeah, awesome. that was, it was really amazing. I think what's most interesting about the, that for those, what's interesting about those particular four students is when you look um, at figure one, you see this big jump after that first phase change line from baseline to the BST phase there for most of them. So for like Martin Lane and Tad, especially you see this big jump from their baseline scores to their BST phase scores. And that's, that's their performance following instructions and modeling. If you're looking at that very first session, yeah, that's their performance in the role play with after just instructions and modeling, they haven't even received any feedback yet. And then they're meeting mastery criterion pretty quickly as well. So they have a really short transition state and then they're meeting mastery criterion quickly, which to us, and we put this in the discussion section to us, that kind of suggested that, um, their behavior might be controlled by some antecedent stimulus events. So just the instructions and modeling is already providing a lot of behavior change for these individuals. So that was really, really cool to see and kind of suggest that maybe we need a component analysis of BST for these skills to see what are the most crucial parts of BST that we can provide to get pretty quick behavior change from these individuals. Yes, if they're making these gains with just instruction and modeling, that's that's incredible. Um, and I, uh, I I did notice looking at the data, I did notice that there were, um, as far as inappropriate questions, I think there were only three that I see in the graphs, like during the entire study. Uh, so was that really like not something that you saw much of, like that that the the individuals were, were asking inappropriate questions? 
Yeah, we didn't. Um, that's another. That's another really interesting point is that we we saw zero question asking, so not engaging in appropriate or inappropriate questions more than we saw inappropriate questions. So our problem from the get-go wasn't that they were asking a ton of inappropriate questions. Our problem in baseline for most of these individuals was just that they weren't asking any questions. That makes sense. Um, but when we did see inappropriate questions, it was typically in the form of, so for example, I think one of the questions that we got, um, we were doing a mock interview for a restaurant and the individual asked, um, am I going to get free food for working here? So that was like an example of an inappropriate question. A fair question, like I, I would want to know that too, but probably not appropriate for That's an interview. Awesome. Yes, probably not appropriate. Something that I think everyone would be thinking in that situation, but maybe not something that you mm -hmm. ask. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering if if that would be different I wonder how that would generalize to an actual interview where, you know, because they know these are mock interviews. They know that they're not going to actually be in that situation. And if they did have those extra, you know, MOs in those situations, I'm wondering if if that would increase the inappropriate questions. But very interesting. Um, now... Do we have any idea if these skills were able to generalize to actual situations? I know you mentioned that was kind of a struggle because you know that you're not in control of when they leave necessarily, that they might leave partway through your study uh, and you know there's not really much follow-up. And so speak to generalization. Do you feel like there, there's a way that you could measure the generalization or were you able to measure any generalization? Yeah, so that, that's probably one of the biggest limits of, of this study um, is we, we train these skills that, you know, we talked about earlier. They're behavioral. It's a behavioral cusp. It's incredibly important for these students um, after they're released from this facility. And yet we, we, we don't know. We have, we have no idea. We're, um, we're not allowed to contact them and we have no way of contacting them after they leave the facility to find out, hey, did you get a job? How did it go? Can you tell me? Like, can you report on your own behavior? Like, let's let's talk. We we don't we don't get to do any of that with our students. Um, That's, so that part that would be so frustrating. Does that just frustrate you so bad that you can't follow up? Um, it's fresh. I guess it's maybe it's frustrating from like a a research perspective. It's yeah. frustrating to not be able to get that. But, you know, our all of our work within this facility is extremely clinically driven. And, and I and I encourage any readers who are interested in reading more about like this, this, this population and what this looks like to go um, check out other studies from uh, Dr. Rapp's lab. So um, Kristen Brogan was one of the first students to enter this facility, and she has a great description of the facility and our role and how clinically driven all of our services are. Um, that's Brogan and colleagues' 2018 paper that's cited in this. Um, but for us, the most important part at the end of the day is that we helped these students with the skill that they specifically asked for. And I think that's what makes this facility so different is, you know, um, the last two years I was working as a clinician. And so a lot of the behaviors that I was targeting for intervention 
first of all, it was children. And so the reports of their behaviors typically came from parents and teachers and siblings and other types of caregivers. That was sort of who was driving a lot of what skills we needed and behaviors we need to target for intervention. That along with, you know, what I would assess would maybe need to be targeted for intervention. What's so different about this and what makes it so important is that these individuals asked for this themselves. Nobody said, hey, this individual needs help on this skill. They asked for it. And so even though we don't get to follow up with them and find out if they were successful or if they generalized the skills or anything like that, um, for us, the most important part at the end of the day is that these individuals did have some exposure to learning these skills and that now they're released from the facility and all we can do is just, just hope for the best for them and hope that we provided them with really great skills to serve them. And that's something that we're sort of starting to focus on a little bit more um, in our lab is sort of like a life after release type skills. So providing them with not just interview skills, but looking at other skills that we could teach them right before they're about to be released to provide them with some more skills for when they are released. Um, so that's a big part of it. From a and, research perspective, oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that I know like you can't really see if, if the skills generalize like for sure and from a research side of things. But those maintenance probes, I think that's super telling. Like <laughs> they, yeah. like with, with Conrad, you have 44 weeks after yes. the training and he's still yes. maintaining those skills. That's incredible. And so like I... We can't assume, and in the article, you don't assume at all, but I think we all, like, know and we all hope that that they're out there, you know, maintaining employment right now, so. Yeah, yeah, that's that's probably, I guess, one of the other um, unique, unique parts of this study. Um, going back to the generalization piece, if I could do one thing different about this study or, you know, We'll continue to do this with students in the future. I would try and um, program for additional generalization and maybe even evaluate it by having them in a different setting, a different room within the facility, and then a totally different interviewer. So oh, that we yeah. could see, are we generalizing across settings? Are we generalizing across interviewers? Are we generalizing across jobs? The only individual who got to, who we were able to evaluate some level of generalization for was Jackson. In his maintenance probes, he did mock interviews for a totally different job. So that that was the extent of it, but we, we really could have done more with that piece. As far as their maintenance of the skill, though, yeah, you're right. Conrad has just incredible maintenance of the skill. And that's sort of, I guess, another portion of this population that is unique. So we have Martin, who is released from the facility before we're able to do any type of maintenance. And we have Conrad, who remains at the facility for almost a year after we're done teaching this skill and is still willing to come to session and um, engage in session with us and engage in this skill. Um, and that's a really unique part about this population is that the students that we serve are really open to learning. Um, like I said, all these students asked for us to help them with these skills um, and a lot of them we're not we evaluate preference within the facility but for a lot of these individuals um, 
their reward at the end for engaging with us and engaging in appropriate responses um, is just like a quick 10-minute game of basketball or a 10-minute game of chess or looking up some of their favorite music on the computer so that they can listen to it. And that's one of my favorite parts about working with the students in this facility is that they're so, they're so willing to learn and um, we get to the reinforcers that they earn are really unique to them. And that's, that's like one of my favorite parts about working in this facility is just that it's like, all right, we're going to do this session and then we're, we're going to go out and play some basketball. And that's, we have a lot of fun with that. That's so cool. So you, you were able to, you know, reinforce participation. Like these are all goals that they want to do. So it's not like you had to pull teeth too much, but that, that's really neat. So that's, that's one of our other limits is that we don't, we don't have a social validity questionnaire. However, one of the really important, perhaps an indirect measure of social validity might be that for all these individuals, um, they can, they can choose not to come to session. Um, However, we only had uh, one session for one student, Jeb, who refused to come to one session. And then the very next time we asked if he wanted to come to session, he wanted to. So we don't have any social formal social validity questionnaires. However, all, for the most part, all of our students were very willing to participate um, in these sessions. That's very telling. I, I think that that really is very telling that they're given the option every time. There is one refusal the entire time. That's that's incredible. I do want to, I want to think about, uh, a lot of people, like whenever I hear things like this, I get super excited, like, oh, behavioral cusp, I want to work on interview skills now. So what thoughts or advice do you have for that practicing behavior analyst excited to give this a try, um, and, you know, implement some of these procedures that you've discussed today? What tips do you have? Um, I think, I think obviously, you know, just based on what we did with our study, that we should always refer back to the the literature every time we come across maybe a a novel behavior that we're going to intervene on or something a little bit different that we haven't done. We should always refer back to our literature. And um, Stoko and colleagues, that study provided us with so much to work from when we decided to use this with our students. Um, And then the the other thing that I would... um, recommend to practicing BCBAs as well as students in um, ABA programs is that I think a lot of times uh, our field just gets known. We have a great history for serving individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities. That's, That's kind of where we got our start as a field, and that's what we're really, really good at. But We're also, our science provides really great tools for a lot of other really unique populations that might not even realize how much we could help them. So I really encourage anybody who's interested in behavior analysis to be open to working with novel populations and to look for what, for if they're interested in something to not be afraid to go find out more about that to go find a way that they can participate with that population or that, you know, different uh, application of ABA um, and to really seek those things out because that's that's part of how we're going to expand our field and that's part of how we're going to be able to, you know, improve the world with our science is by finding ways that we can use our science to serve others where 
maybe others don't even, you know, know how much we could serve them. But that's certainly what's happening in this facility um, is we're, we're able to serve these individuals and it's, it's having large impacts on them within the facility and outside of the facility, hopefully. So I just encourage people to, to not be afraid to go look at different applications of ABA because it can be so rewarding to do so. That's perfectly said. And I think that's especially impactful when those people are coming to you for help. And that's uh, what you guys were able to do. And uh, just before we go, I do want to give a shout out. You had some other authors listed in your study. And I think it's important to give them a, a shout out and some recognition. So you had John T. Rapp, Kristen M. Brogan, Sarah M. Richling, Sally A. Hamrick, Rachel J. Peters, and Sarika A. O'Rourke. Yes. Uh, so it looks like you really had an amazing team you were working with. We did have an amazing team. Um, and I'm really grateful to all of them. All, all of them are phenomenal behavior analysts. And I also want to thank the Alabama Department of Youth Services. Um, they um, fund a lot of the services that we're able to provide. They allow us to be in their facilities to serve their students. And so as a team, we're also really grateful to them for providing this opportunity for us to serve this population. That's awesome. And, you know, thank you to you for coming and disseminating this information to, to all of us. So thank you. Of course, of course. <laughs>